I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello again, my friend. Today's number is five. With Greta Gerwig's nomination for Lady Bird in the category of Best Director at the Oscars, that's how many women have ever been nominated for that award in the, what, 90-year history of that show? Lena Vertmuller in 1977 for Seven Beauties was the first. Then you got to skip ahead about 20 years to 1994 for Jane Campion, who was nominated for The Piano. Then skip another 10 years to Sofia Coppola for Lost in Translation in 2004. Then you got to fast forward to 2010 for Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker, who was the only woman to have ever won the Best Director statue. For the record, Bigelow should actually have won two of them because she should have a second one for 2013 uh, with Zero Dark Thirty, but that's a whole other story. So why did it take another eight years after Bigelow's 2010 win in that historic, uh, her historic victory in that category, why did it take another eight years for a woman to be nominated again, just nominated? I'm not going to answer the question. I'm just asking it. By the way, at the Oscars on March 4th, Gerwig will go up against Jordan Peele in the category of Best Director, who himself is the only the fifth black person ever nominated for that award as well. No black people have ever won it. That's pretty sad. This is the Stream Police Podcast. The Stream Police Podcast is brought to you by OverdueReview.com. Want something more in-depth than a sarcastic, pretentious, 140-character review of your favorite movie? Read long-form reviews of movies, TV, and music from the distant and recent past at OverdueReview.com. Hello again. Welcome, my friend, into my closet in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I'm beaming this out to you. Thank you very much for joining me. I know uh, if you're checking out the show, you are a, a, a big fan Movies, music, television, that's what we talk about here on the Stream Police Podcast. That's what we talk about over at OverdueReview.com as well. Just who brings you this show. I am the movies and TV editor at Overdue Review. My good friend Andy Sedlak, the music editor, we'll be hearing from him in just a little bit here on the show as well. And I know he's got a thing or two to say about the Grammys, as he always does. He and I would watch the Grammys regularly. We watch the Grammys together. Um, and we used to watch them every year, but you know how it is when you get older. Um, and I, hopefully we'll end up getting together again, uh, you know, a few more times here down the road and, and watching them together. But it's just always like we enjoy the performances for the most part. But the awards, I think Andy's with me when I say this, that I, I think they should just get rid of the awards. Like just stop doing the awards on TV anyway. Just make the telecast all about the performances because that's the only good thing really about the telecast anyway. Nobody, 
the 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 awards that they do broadcast the winners it's all it's the general field uh categories usually it's not like best rock album where they just have rock artists competing against each other best you know hip hop album they do air that one uh now because hip hop's you know finally popular enough for it to be televised uh in the eyes of the grammys but the general field categories like record of the year where they just throw any genre in together usually just ends up being pop records pretty much and it's just always such a shit show as far as what wins and and you know and there's like there there have hardly been any times where i've after looking at the nominees felt like a they got all of them right and b whoever won was like the one i was i was hoping would win the couple times they did get it right i remember when when arcade fire won for the suburbs that really was a great record um andy might disagree with me on whether or not that's their best record but uh that i mean that was a fantastic album and it was cool to see that kind of a band win it and when beck won it a couple years ago and of course a bunch of morons were on twitter like who's beck they didn't know who beck was the the record that he put out that it, that it, um won for it was i thought just a fantastic album and he he's one of those guys that like every few albums he reinvents himself and he did it again with that one and um and it was just a really cool album i still like to go back and listen to that one so just uh that, that's one of those guys that i think career-wise they were giving him the Grammy finally, like they did for Dylan in the nineties. But, uh, there's just not been very many times where I felt like they've, they got it right, but I'm a huge rap guy. So I pretty much am, I'm wanting it to go to a hip hop album almost every year. Uh, all three of the records that Kendrick Lamar has put out, I, I felt were good enough to win, uh, for album of the year, but he alas has, has not won it. But like I said, I think Andy will have, uh, if I know him, I think I do at this point. He'll have something to say about that a little bit later on. Uh, all right, let me go ahead and light my stogie. I've been talking too long here without uh, without a smoke in my hand. I'm I'm sitting in my closet in Cincinnati, Ohio. Again, I'm Clint Davis. I like to light my stogie up before I talk to you. Get the closet smelling all nice and smoky, and uh, give myself the atmosphere to 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 go and to, to do this thing with you. So here we go. All right, so I'm going to start the show as I always do, with a look back at TV history. And, you know, the opening theme songs that open the shows are such a, a a part of every show that we love. You know, almost every show that you've loved over the years has had a theme song that you can't get enough of. I mean, there are a few exceptions out there. Lost didn't really have a theme song. You know, Breaking Bad didn't really have much of a theme song. But still, most of the shows that you love, you connect with that theme song. And even if it wasn't the best one ever, you still you get warm feelings when you hear it because, you know, you have great memories of watching that show. So that's why I start every episode of this show by doing a segment I like to call the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. And for our 25th entry into the canon of greatest TV show theme songs ever, I'm going to go back to 1993 for this song. And, and believe me, folks, it's spooky. It's atmospheric, and it's instantly identifiable as the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. It's the theme from The X-Files, and this theme song and this show hold a special place in my heart because this was one of the first shows that my wife Beth and I watched from start to finish together on Netflix. We just, you know 
poured through all at that point nine seasons of the show a few years ago. We took a long time to do it too. This wasn't like a you know over the course of two months we watched every episode. We took a long time to watch all nine seasons of that. You know, you're talking 24 episodes a season. That was a network show. It's a slog to go through those network shows again, especially those hour dramas. But it was so fun watching that show together, and it's just one of my fondest memories of TV viewing that I've had in my entire life. And you know, I've had a few of them, um, or I wouldn't sit in my closet. Uh, talking to you about television if I didn't. But even if I wasn't sentimental, and even if this wasn't the month of February, so I'm I'm getting a little romantic here, this is just a fucking great theme song. So if you don't know Jack about the X-Files, the show is, of course, about a couple of FBI agents who investigate crimes that are typically linked to some kind of paranormal or supernatural phenomenon. And the song has just all that mystery and eeriness built right into it, right into every note and right into the sound of the production. It says about as much as a piece of music can say in just 40 seconds. The song, titled The X-Files, was written by New York native Mark Snow, who'd previously written music, get this, for Pee-wee's Playhouse, and had composed the theme songs for T.J. Hooker and Heart to Heart. So that is some serious range for you. One of my favorite things about doing this segment every week is getting to know the guys who compose these TV theme songs because, I mean, first off, that's a fascinating job, right? And seeing, like, the different shows that they've done, there's almost always, like, last month's was Green Acres, and the guy who wrote Green Acres was the guy who who wrote the Adams Family theme song. I mean, it's insane, right? It's amazing the range that these guys have. So now you've got a guy who did Heart to Heart and who also did the X-Files theme. So you can't really get much more... Different than that. Now, in the years since he wrote his masterpiece, which is the X-Files theme song, Mark Snow has written the themes for Smallville and La Femme Nikita, the show, not the film. Since this song was first heard in 1993, Snow's X-Files theme has been remixed by DJs. It's been covered by the likes of Alvin and the Chipmunks. And the song even hit number one in France, Denmark, and Scotland. Of all the TV theme songs that would be number one hits, and there have been a few of them over the years, I would have never guessed the X-Files theme would have hit number one on any chart. But it did, 1996, France, Denmark, and Scotland, this song went to number one. Just, that's just strange, isn't it? I mean, can you ever imagine that being a number one hit here in America, especially in the 90s? I mean, sure, in the 60s, different thing back then. Instrumental music was popular and AM radio and, you know, all those instrumental hits that were, you know, the shit back then. But could you imagine that, like 1996, that song coming on the radio and, like, being heard all, enough to be considered number one? That's insane to me. But there you go. That's France for you. That's the height of culture over there. The 
The X-Files is still on the air today after a 14-year hiatus that went from 2002 to 2016. They brought the show back in 2016, back with Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny uh, playing, of course, Fox Mulder and Dana Scully once again. And on every episode, that beautiful theme song plays untouched at the opening. It's a thing of weird beauty, my friend, and I hope you'll agree with me. That's my pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. We run the gamut, man. We do all kinds of theme songs. I don't just stick with like the eerie, creepy ones or, you know, the ones that are only instrumentals. I'm not a snob when it comes to the theme songs. We've done everything from the Sesame Street theme to Green Acres to Hawaii Five O to the X Files now to Roseanne. We've had tons here in this. Like I said, 25 different uh, theme songs we've done on that segment so far, and I'm going to keep cranking them out, man. You can go back and revisit the first entry into the canon of greatest TV show theme songs of all time this week. If you go to our YouTube channel, OverdueReview.com, on YouTube there, I made a video out of that. I think I'm going to go back and and kind of turn all those old entries into videos since uh, it's not too hard to do, and it's kind of fun to go back and, and see them. I mean, they are evergreen after all. We're talking about the greatest. We're talking about the goats here. All right, before I move on real quick, I wanted to uh, check in on uh, an email I got from our good buddy Glenn, who uh, said he was catching up on his podcast after the uh, the new year and after the Christmas season, and he said he really liked the last episode. He, he told me that he's never seen the Green Acres uh, TV show, but that he immediately recognized the theme song right away, called it definitely a good choice. And uh, he was loving my pick of the Hawaii Five O theme song a few months ago. I think he actually requested that one, and I was I I already had it in consideration. You didn't even need to request it, Glenn, but it was a great pick, of course. Um, he says he's also going to check out Better Things after my recommendation of it. Glad to hear that. Always glad that uh, when you guys uh, trust me enough to pick up a show because that's a major commitment. And I don't come on here and talk to you about shows unless I'm fully sure that they are worth your time, all right? And Better Things is like a quick, quick watch, so it's not going to take you long. Like, Better Things and Insecure are the two shows that in the last few years have come out that I recommend everyone watch because they're so fast to get through, and the quality is so high for both of them. And in both instances, you're supporting, you know, female writers, directors, uh, creators in both cases, So and stars, obviously. Um, so th- those are the two shows I just can't recommend more, Insecure and Better Things. And I hope you're going to like Better Things, Glenn. I hope uh, some of you guys out there will check the show out as well. It was picked up for a third season, so we'll be coming back next year without the grubby paws of Louis C.K. And Glenn also in his email went on about Star Wars because I talked about that in the last episode. I talked about The Last Jedi. He said that uh, he's deeply conflicted about the new movie uh, on first viewing. He said he really, uh, he really liked it. And sitting there in the theaters, he really liked it because... I have only seen it once as well, and in theaters I did like it also. But, you know, sometimes in theaters you get it's you get biased for seeing a movie in theaters, especially a big sci-fi action movie because it's so intense and it's such a sensory overload, especially if you're seeing it like on IMAX or something like that, which Beth and I did see the new Star Wars movie on IMAX. So, you know, like the floor's rumbling because the sound is so great and all kinds of, you know, cool shit is happening. And you're seeing this movie in theaters, so it's almost impossible not to like it in that case. But Glenn says he, he loved it when he was watching it in theaters, but he soured on it the more he thought about it. He just said some of the plot elements uh, he didn't think really went anywhere. They were unnecessary. And he didn't think the storyline involving the rebellion was very compelling. 
but he did like Mark Hamill in the movie, which we both will agree on that. Basically, at the end of the day, Glenn said, I'm not saying it's a bad movie because I was really wowed by parts of it, but it's definitely not my favorite. I'm super curious to see where they go next. Well, that's all Disney needs, man. For you to say you're super curious uh, to see where it goes next, that's really all they care about. They don't care if you thought the movie was good. Uh, necessarily. I mean, they hope you think it's good. Obviously, they, everyone who makes a movie hopes you're going to think it's good. But if you're curious as to what's coming next, that's all that matters to them. So, uh, Glenn, I know you're a big Star Wars guy. I know you've read some of the books and stuff you said, and you've seen all the movies, of course, multiple times. So I'm sure you'll be there, even if uh, this movie had sucked. I mean, look, we all came back. All the Star Wars fans came back after George Lucas's prequel trilogy. Which, over time, when I've gone back to watch those movies again, I don't think they've gotten any better. I don't think that time has made those better. I think it's actually made them worse because the special effects look worse. The one thing you could say about the prequel movies in 1999 and in 2002, especially talking about the first two because the first two are just really, they're just trash. Um, especially the second one is really bad. I mean that that's the that is the low point for Star Wars, and I hope that's always going to be the low point. I hope we never get one worse than that. The third one, I think we all liked a little bit more, and and the first one, you know, it has some cool parts. Like the pod race stuff is pretty cool, and Liam Neeson obviously is awesome, and Ewan McGregor they're they're fun to watch together. But those movies have gotten worse as time's gone on. I've gone back and watched them now several times since they were in theaters and at least in 99 you could say man the special effects are amazing you know the amount of money they spent on it was crazy nobody had ever done a bunch of green screen stuff quite like that before and animating all those you know clone troopers and stuff like they did in the second one but now it just looks bad the acting's terrible the story's bad it doesn't add anything to the universe really um and it's just bad i I think those movies have, have gotten worse as time has gone on, actually. But these new ones, I hope when we look back in 30 years, will still be good because, I mean, they're at least funny. They do have some gripping moments. Last Jedi did have some really nice little story elements. I thought some new characters that they threw in uh, that that uh, made me like the Star Wars universe even more and made it and expanded the Star Wars universe a little bit more. As I said uh, in my review last week, if you want to hear my full thoughts on The Last Jedi, check out uh, episode 51 of the Stream Police Podcast. Thank you very much, Glenn. Always appreciate to hear uh, hearing from you. Um, he's, a, he's a good listener, man. And uh, I, I know he's a great movie lover as well, so I'm always glad to hear your thoughts. Davis at gmail.com. T-H-E Clint Davis at gmail.com. Always happy to answer your emails here on the show. All right, without further ado, let me get to one of my favorite segments every year, something I, I work for, work toward, and look forward to every year, my top five movies of the year. Now, I know what you're going to say. It's February of 2018. Who cares about 2017 movies? Why do you still care about that? Well, you know, for some of us who live in the Midwest, we don't get to see the movies that end up being Oscar nominated until pretty much they've already been nominated or won Golden Globes. Now, Beth and I were hustling on the movies this year. We actually saw every, we ended up seeing every Best Picture nominee almost before the nominees came out. There was only one we hadn't seen before the nominees came out. So we had already seen them all. We we busted our ass to get out there this year. But, yeah, I mean, when you live in Ohio, it's tough because you don't see the movies until two months after people in New York and L.A. see them, which kind of sucks. Uh, but I guess that's the way it is. So that's why in February every year, pretty much, I, I bring you my top five of the year. And I will tell you that you can go to the website, overduereview.com, if you want to see my full top 10 
of 2017. But I want to give you my top five here on the show in case you're not a website reader and you just like to hear them on your way into work. My top five movies of 2017. I got to tell you, this was the toughest year that I've had. I've been doing a top 10 list every year since 2014, 2013 actually, and I haven't had a harder time than this year paring it down and cutting things because I think this was the best year at the movies that I can remember in a long time. It was just there was a wealth of great filmmaking going on from the start of the year to the end of it. It wasn't all log jammed up, you know, in November, December. There was a lot of it all throughout the year. And one of my top five movies came out all the way back in February, for God's sakes. And I don't remember the last time that that's been the case. So let's get to it. I'll stop wasting time. My top five movies of 2017. I recommend you go out and see them as soon as you can. Number five, The Shape of Water. The best word to describe this film is gorgeous. This is gorgeous, lush filmmaking from Guillermo del Toro, the guy who did um, Pan's Labyrinth and who did uh, Crimson Peak a few years ago, which was also a lush, gorgeous movie. But wasn't a very good movie, but it was a gorgeous movie. Um, and this is guy. This guy is just really—he's a visionary, and he makes monster movies like old time. He loves the old time Hollywood monster movies, and you can tell that. And I think this is his best film yet. And I know Beth loves. Pan's Labyrinth, and we talked about this in the car after we saw this movie. That's like one of her all-time favorite movies. So she's probably a little biased there. But I think this was even better than Pan's Labyrinth, and certainly better for a wide audience because it's in English, first off. Um, So a lot more people, in America at least, are going to see it and are going to uh, get the chance to enjoy it. It's really all about vulnerability, and it's about taking care of people, and it's about... uh, you know, stepping up when you feel like something needs to be done and, and, and being heroic in, in the right moment. And it's also about great love. I mean, this was a really a beautiful romance movie. And I think this movie showed how versatile the word romantic can really be because at the end of the day, what it's essentially about. So this movie is set, I think, in the 1950s, 60s. I think it's the 1960s. It's like Mad Men era. And it follows this woman played by Sally Hawkins, who's a mute and who was found as a child washed up on a, um, you know, like near a river bank or something. And, you know, she, she lives in a city in this little apartment. And her, like, best friend is this older gay guy played by Richard Jenkins who lives in the apartment next door to hers. And she's also good friends with a woman played by Oct- Octavia Spencer who she works with. Well, you look at this. Look. Some of the best minds in the country peeing all over the floor in this here facility. Mm-mm-mm. There's pee freckles on the ceiling now. How do they get it up there? Just how big a target do they need, you figure? Get enough practice, that's for sure. So anyway, long story short, this new, like, weird sea monster ends up getting captured by the U.S. military, and they bring it to this place where she works, where she and Octavia Spencer work as on the cleaning crew. And so she sees this creature, and she sees how they're treating it, they're abusing it, and she ends up slowly over time falling in love with this creature, and the, the creature's very human-like. So it's not too weird, but it's just creepy enough when you got this interspecies romance. But I'm telling you, man, the love story is so well done, the acting so well done, the special effects on the creature are fantastic. Uh, I mean, this thing looks so real and really makes you feel for it. Um, and Sally Hawkins' character is so good because we've got a character, we've got a woman who, I don't want to say she's disabled because being mute, I don't know if that's really a disability. You know, it's not like being blind or something like that. 
She just can't talk, but she still can communicate fine. She uses American Sign Language all throughout the film. And so, you know, it's but it's this portrait of a, a woman who, let's say she's disabled, a disabled lead film character. And the way she's played, though, I mean, this woman is so just like tough and brave and she's normal. She's not like over the top, you know, crazy hero. She's uh, but it's a really good portrait of somebody who is different than a lot of movie characters that I've seen. Sally Hawkins does a beautiful job with it. The The entire cast are just pros. I mean, you got like I said, you've got Octavia Spencer, you've got uh, Richard Jenkins, you've got Michael Stuhlbarg, who's in every great movie this year, it seems like. You've got um, the great Michael Shannon is in this movie as well, and he plays like this just awful, horrible, you know, this this villain. You ladies seem to be chatting enjoyably. Girl talk, no doubt. Don't mind me. But this is a beautiful movie, I'm telling you. And I haven't really seen too many films like it. It just has such an affinity for old school Hollywood and for the way that those old golden age movies looked and sounded. The score is my favorite. It's my favorite score of the year as well. Um, I just I really loved this movie. I thought it was fantastic. I loved it from start to finish. It didn't have to build slowly like some other movies did um, this year. This one was just great. I think from the first frame until the last frame, I was with it. I got it. I loved it. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it again once it uh, it comes out on home video. I'll definitely be checking this one out one more time. So The Shape of Water, that is my number five movie of 2017. I made Brewster pigs in a blanket tonight before leaving. Boy, he just ate them up. No thank yous, no yum-yums, not a feet. Man is as silent as a grave. But if farts are flattery, honey, he be Shakespeare. I get home and I make him breakfast. Eggs, bacon, and butter toast. I butter the man's toast a lot. Mm-hmm. Both sides. As if he was a child. And I don't even get a thank you. You'd be grateful because you're an educated woman, but my Bruce, all he had going for him was animal magnetism back in the day. <laughs> Hadn't worked in a while. I recommend that one if you're a little bit of a romantic. And if you like things, if you like old Hollywood, and if you like monster movies, of course, you're going to love that as well because it does have a little bit of that monster element in it. But it's just a sweet movie at the end of the day. It's also funny, too. It's not a. It, it's not one of these movies that takes itself way seriously like some other films this year did. All right, number four. My number four best movie of 2017 was Lady Bird, directed by the aforementioned Greta Gerwig, who has a chance to be the second woman ever to win a Best Director Oscar Really, it is a great movie, and it draws so much from her own personal life and from growing up. But I think she's she's going to have—this isn't going to be her last rodeo. This isn't going to be her last chance to win a Best Director Oscar, I don't think. And I, I certainly hope not, anyway. But so this movie, if you haven't seen it, it's a it's classic coming-of-age story um, about a, a girl who goes to a private Catholic school, lives in Sacramento. She's got the you know itchiness that comes along with living in like a small-ish town. Sacramento is not the smallest town in the world. Certainly there's enough to do there. But it's just not huge, you know? I mean, she doesn't live in L.A. She doesn't live in New York. And that's what she wants. She wants to live in New York. She wants to be a part of something bigger. And, uh, you know, her parents are trying to understand her. Her dad really seems like does understand her, but her mom, not so much. They they butt heads a lot. And uh, Lori Metcalf from Roseanne, who played Aunt Jackie on Roseanne, plays her mom. And the relationship between the two of them is so thorny but sweet 
also, um, and it, it's just it's a really great portrait of the complicated relationship between parents and children, especially mothers and daughters. This is one of the best representations of a mother-daughter relationship I've ever seen in a movie. And, I mean, they go from one second being at each other's throats to the next second. Um, you know, everything's cool. It's just normal. They're not uh, hugging and crying or anything, but they're just, it's its fine. It's whatever. I want to go where culture is, but like New in the York. World did I raise such or a at snob. least Connecticut or New Hampshire, well, where writers live in the woods. Get into those schools anyway. Mom, you can't even pass your driver's test because you wouldn't let me practice. The way enough. that you work, or the or the way that you don't work, you're not even worth state tuition, Christine. My name is Ladybird. Uh, well, actually, it's not, and it's ridiculous. Call me Ladybird, like Christine. you said you would. Just you should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College and then to jail and then back to City College. You know, little disagreements are part of everyday life there. So, it's uh, it was really a great movie for that. As far as the relationships between the characters, I really bought them. Um, and watching this girl grow up, and she goes by the name Lady Bird. It's not her birth name, but that's what she wants to be called. And so much of this movie is about identity, and it's about the uh, the, the transient you know, nature of being a teenager is really what this movie is all about. And you remember being a teenager. You think back to some of the things you did that you're not proud of, and you wonder why you did them. And it, there's no real reason. It's just because you were a teenager, and at the moment, that felt good. Whatever shitty thing you said to somebody or the way you dumped a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever, and, and it was totally heartless when you think back on it, it was just at the time, whatever, it felt right. I've ha- I had those moments in my life when I think back on them, and in Lady Bird, sometimes you just want to slap the character, you want to slap Lady Bird across the face because it's like, what the fuck are you doing? Don't you understand what you're doing? But she doesn't. She's just a teenager. She's trying to figure out what you know, what fits. She's trying on a million different shoes and trying to, you know, find out which one is the most comfortable. So it's it's a great movie about that, about growing up and about how great of a time in your life that is. It will make you kind of want to go back and be in that time again. Um, just because, you know, the whole world is out in front of you and you can kind of do whatever you want to. So that's the beautiful thing about this movie. That was what I really liked about Lady Bird. But also it's funnier than shit. Um, it has such a great young cast with people like Beanie Feldstein, who plays Lady Bird's best friend. And Saoirse Ronan and Beanie Feldstein share some truly great scenes, a couple of my favorite scenes that I saw at the movies this year. Especially there's one when they're sitting in um, Beanie Feldstein's character's car, and they're crying their eyes out while they're listening to Dave Matthews' band. The whole thing is set in the 90s, by the way. So anybody who grew up in the 90s, especially was a teenager in the 90s, um, like the late Gen Xers will... Uh, definitely identify, I think, with Lady Bird a little bit. But it's just, it was, that was such a great scene. That was probably my favorite scene of all that I saw in the in the entire year of 2017. I just, I loved it. I, I, I loved that scene. And I, the movie was so great. Timothy, uh, Timothy Calamay, who, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, but he was also plays a, a nice little part in it. And Lucas Hedges, who was so great in... Um, Manchester by the Sea last year is in it as well, and he also has a beautiful scene where he breaks down with Saoirse Ronan when uh, you know he's admitting this secret that he's carried around for so long. And it's just a really, it's just a cool movie, and it's a fun one, man, and it's funny. And uh, Saoirse Ronan once again just proves how natural she is, man. I mean, how did she play an Irish immigrant in the 1950s? so naturally and then like two years later turn around and play this like kind of spoiled misanthropic 1990s teenager in california just as naturally as she did the irish immigrant i don't know but that's that's acting man and she's 
She's a pro. She's fantastic at it. So uh, that's my number four movie of the year, Lady Bird. If you like the coming-of-age movies, if you like the teen movies, if you like the nostalgia a little bit of the 1990s, if you get nostalgic about the 1990s, give Lady Bird a watch. I think you're definitely going to dig that one. And if, you're, if you were a little rebellious growing up as well, too, I think you'll, you'll, you'll find a, a kindred spirit in the main character of Lady Bird. Number three, my number three best movie of 2017 was the one that came out all the way back in February. And here I am a year after seeing it telling you how great this thing was. And I haven't stopped thinking about it once since I saw it back in February. It is Get Out. I tell you what, Get Out is one of the best movies that I've seen in years. And certainly in the horror genre, you only get one that comes out like this about every few years. Now, last year, I also had the movie The Witch in my top 10. So two years in a row, I've had horror movies in my top 10, which is crazy because it's just, it doesn't happen very often, but man, it's so great when somebody who's a real filmmaker comes along and is allowed to be visionary and is allowed to make a horror film that really means something because that genre can just do things to you that other genres cannot do. And when it's handled by an artist, horror is, it might be the best genre of them all because it just, gets you so on the edge of your seat and then you're in this place where you can feel things that you wouldn't be able to feel in other movies but get out is way more than just the slasher horror movie this is like an exploitation movie and this is a, a message picture like the old norman jewison movies were where in the end you're being taught a lesson the whole time you're being taught a lesson about racism in america and the way that jordan peele the writer and director who was also one of the guys from key and peele put this movie together was so genius uh everything there's so many layers to everything there's so much symbolism there's so many metaphors behind all the things that are happening in this movie that it almost it makes repeated viewings like mandatory for this film so if you want a total head trip and you want a movie that's going to make you think about racism in a way that you've probably never thought about it before but this is coming from a black writer and director and a guy who says it, it hits closer to home than you might think it does because it's totally over the top. I mean, the stuff that he does in this movie is crazy. And I don't want to give anything away, but basically what you've got, the, the storyline is this young black guy goes to, oh, is it like New England or something like that? It, it, anyway, it goes to like this, his his white girlfriend's wealthy family estate, um, you know, in the country for a weekend and everything just goes to a place that you could never imagine it was going to go. This is Nielsen and Elisa. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> so, how handsome is he? I'm, are you handsome? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, not bad. Hey, Nielsen. So, is it true? Is it better? Wow. Wow. Um, and the whole idea is so crazy. This this movie is like the best episodes of The Twilight Zone because it makes you think about something, you know, in a way that you hadn't thought about it before. And the mystery is so great. And it's just it's got these all these fantastic quotes and these moments that immediately become part of pop culture. I'm telling you, if Rod Serling was alive, I think Get Out would be his favorite movie of the last 10 years without question. So if you like that kind of stuff, if you like Twilight Zone, if you like horror, if you like um, you know movies that make you look at something in a different way, and if you like things that are layered in symbolism, layered in metaphors, uh, I think you're going to really like Get Out. It's a trippy 
fucking movie, but it is fantastic. And it's scary, man. It's definitely scary. I can't imagine for black audiences how exhilarating seeing this movie was because I know for me it was exhilarating, but I just have to imagine for them it was just like something else entirely because I've never seen a movie like this before. It's 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 fantastic stuff. And Get Out might have been the ballsiest movie of 2017, but I'm putting it at number three in my top five movies of the year. So how long has this been going on, this, this thing? <laughs> how long? <laughs> Four months. Four months? Mm. Uh, five months, actually. She's right. I'm wrong. boy. Better get used to saying that. <laughs> I, please, I'm so sorry. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. She's right. I'm wrong. <laughs> See? Does he have an off button? This is exhausting. I don't know. I want to give you a tour. Number two, my second favorite movie of 2017 was a tiny little powerhouse of a film that nobody saw that I saw a few months ago. I was lucky enough to catch in a screening, and I couldn't stop thinking about it since then. It's The Florida Project. It's not the best title ever, but it makes sense once you've seen the movie. The Florida Project is this film that basically feels like a documentary. And it's populated mostly with non-actors, with the exception of Willem Dafoe, who did get nominated for an Oscar for his role in this, and deservedly so because he's, I mean, Willem Dafoe is one of the best actors on the planet. I I think he's underrated still. But you look at his filmography, he's got the best filmography, I'm telling you. He's got one of the best filmographies of any actor in the history of cinema. The, The directors that he's worked with, the movies that he's been a part of, a big part of, I mean, this guy has just made great choice after great choice as far as the films that he's been in over the years. And, he, I mean, he's 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 exciting to watch, man. He's cool. And this is one of my favorite performances that he's ever given, and I think it's different than a lot of his other performances as well. So in The Florida Project, he plays the manager of this, like, very tacky it, this motel that's painted purple that's on the main strip in Orlando, Florida. That's where the, the motel is. And... I think the place is called the Magic Castle Motel. And most of the people who stay there are not tourists, but they're people who live there. They live there. They pay rent every week to him just to stay in this crappy hotel. And he runs the whole place, and he's kind of like the de facto father to everyone who lives in this place. And he's a very nice guy, and he tries to help people out as much as he can. Um, And once once again, it's just a fun part to watch. But all the other players in the movie pretty much are non-actors. and uh, But the... The lead of the movie is this little girl who's played by a young actor named Brooklyn Prince. And she had been a couple other things, but this is her first like big lead performance. And she plays a girl named Mooney in the movie. And I'm telling you, she is about as wild a kid as I have ever seen, almost to the point of being feral. And it's not her fault. I mean, she's being raised by a mother who is just a few years older than she is, who lives in this motel, who strips and is a prostitute on the side for uh, you know, some of the little bit of money that she's able to scrape together next month. And she doesn't, you know, really spend a lot of time mentoring her daughter to be anything other than just kind of a lump who goes around and eats ice cream all the time. So it's it's a movie just kind of about childhood and about a childhood that you don't you wouldn't wish anybody would have. But the whole thing's not so bleak. I mean, the, the character of Mooney is so full of life and so kinetic to watch. Um, that it makes the whole thing easier to digest, but still, this was a hard movie to watch because it is sad. Um, 
just the lives that they live and, and the danger that she's put in every day. But um, it, it was just a wild, wild movie. And I had a blast watching this thing. And I was disappointed that it wasn't nominated for more Oscars than just Willem Dafoe, because it's certainly better than just a one Oscar nomination movie. Like I said, I, I, I pretty much saw I saw all the big ones last year. And this is my number two movie of the year. And for a while, it was my number one movie of the year. I thought it was fantastic. The Florida Project is, again, unlike really anything that I've ever seen. Sean Baker, the guy who directed it, he did a movie called Tangerine a couple years ago that I kind of slammed a little bit. I, I didn't totally hate it, but I talked about it on this show and I said it was overrated. Um, it, he made the whole thing on iPhones. So it looked, you know, it was like a, kind of hard to watch, but it was really, again, it was a lot of non-actors and it was like a documentary style movie. This one he didn't make with iPhones, but it's again that same kind of deal where he's just embedding himself with the people and he's kind of following their lives a little bit. So it's a cool movie and there's there's not really anything else like it that you're going to see this year. So hopefully you get a chance if you get to check it out. Uh, give it a watch. The Florida Project. Very good. It's my second favorite movie of 2017. It's only second week of the summer and there's already been a dead fish in the pool. We were doing an experiment. We were trying to get it back alive. That wasn't my and, idea. And water balloons thrown at tourists. You can't fuck with tourists. They didn't tip us. Are you serious? No. Oh my God, this is unacceptable. I failed as a mother, Mooney. You've disgraced me. Harley. Yeah, Mom, you're disgraced. And I'm going to talk to Ashley, by the way. When your friend puts you in charge of her kid, that kid becomes your responsibility. You ain't taking responsibility. And you got that one, too? She's from Futureland, right? Oh, whatevs. You got to relax, my man. You going to redo my expense reports with your whatevs? Your kid killed my night. I wanted to watch the ball game. You're going to pay me for three hours that I got to work later? Hey, guys, pay the man for his three hours. I don't have any I don't money. Have, I don't have any money. We don't have any money. You're Speaking shit out of, of which, you haven't given me this which rent yet. You don't think I know that, show? And finally, without further ado, my number one, my favorite movie of the year 2017, which, like I said, was... One of the best years of the cinema that I can even remember ever. And I've been into movies for as long as I've been alive, pretty much. But my number one movie of 2017 was Phantom Thread. You know I've raved about Paul Thomas Anderson before on this show, but I am not blinded. At the end of the day, I'm still a critic. And, you know, a few years ago, when he did Inherent Vice, I liked Inherent Vice but I didn't love it. It felt like a, a kind of a, a slump movie for him, which I, I never really felt like he had done one. That was a little bit of a slump movie. But I'm telling you, with Phantom Thread, and I wasn't nuts about The Master either. It was okay, but wasn't you know the best thing I've ever seen, like some of his other movies have been for me. But Phantom Thread is a return to form for one of the great directors that America has going right now, and Paul Thomas Anderson is back up on it with this thing. I'm telling you, Daniel Day-Lewis, he's supposedly retiring after this performance, and I hope he does. I I actually hope he does because this performance is so good that it might be the best work that Daniel Day-Lewis has done his entire career. And, you know, I hate to be hyperbolic, but he is so natural in this movie. You know how Daniel Day-Lewis always feels a little bit like over the top, like he just feels almost too fucking powerhouse or something like Gangs of New York. You know, that's a great performance. It's, it's a mesmerizing performance. It is so electric. I cannot take my eyes off the screen for one second when, you know, Bill Cutting is on the screen in that movie. But it's way over the top, right? And even Lincoln. Lincoln was a little bit over the top, too, and the, the accent kind of got on my nerves. And it's just, you know, it's one of those things where it's a great performance, but come on. And then there will be blood. 
once again, couple scenes there, way over the top. You know, I drink your milkshake and I have abandoned my child. I've abandoned my boy. Those scenes, way over the top. Great film, amazing performance. Can't take your eyes off of it, but over the top. Phantom Thread is so dialed down. He actually uses his real accent for the first time, like, in forever. I can't ever remember him using his actual British accent in a movie. But this performance is just like, I mean, he's in the skin. And so much of the movie is made up of silent, um, you know, body language cues and not big monologues and not big screaming scenes or anything like that. There are a couple times when, you know, he starts raising the voice a little bit. But most of the movie is just a duel between he and Vicky Creeps who is this like mysterious actor who I have not really seen in anything else and you can't really tell what her accent is and you know what where she's coming from but it's such a, a cool mysterious beautiful movie I'm telling you the costumes are fantastic what what Phantom Thread is about if you haven't seen any previews or read anything about it it's about this um you know world renowned fashion designer it's it takes place in the 1950s I believe um World-renowned fashion designer played by Daniel Day-Lewis, who, you know, has his uh, long list of, of clients that include, you know, royals from different countries. And, you know, people are dying for him to design their dresses. And he surrounds himself by women like his sister, who's this total hard-ass, um, who kind of runs the business end for him. And he, you know, creates the dresses. And, and he's got this team of seamstresses who also work with him to make his immaculate pieces of art come to life. And, and he puts them on women. And and there you go. And then he, he goes on to the next one. And, and it, the whole thing is such an exhausting process to him that this movie is really about, it's about artists and it's about like without, that sounds pretentious, but it's not pretentious at all. This movie is about artists and the like fragile, fragile egos that artists do have most of the time. That's what this whole film is about. This guy is so delicate and so fragile. He can't handle any interruptions. He can't handle it if you chew your food a little bit too loudly in the morning when he's trying to eat his breakfast. It like throws his entire day off. So, you know, just watching Daniel Day-Lewis simmer through the entire movie is so fun. And Vicky Creeps ends up just being like, like intentionally trying to be a pain in this guy's ass while at the same time their love continues to grow, and it's this strange romance between people who you don't know, do they hate each other, do they really love each other, or do they love each other because they kind of hate each other? It's not because the fabric is adored by the clients that Cyril is right. It's right because it's right. Because it's beautiful. Maybe one day you'll change your taste, Alma. Maybe not. Maybe you have no taste. Maybe I like my own taste. Yes, just enough to get you into trouble. Perhaps I'm looking for trouble. Stop! I don't know. It's a fascinating thing to watch play out. And when it was over, I just wanted the film to keep going. And I just, I I loved it. I loved Phantom Thread. I I did not want it to end. Um, The music was fantastic. Um... Like I said, the look of the movie, absolutely gorgeous. And Paul Thomas Anderson, it's the best movie that he's done since There Will Be Blood at least, but I would go even further. I'd say that it's the best movie he's done since Magnolia, which is my favorite movie of all time. So, like I said, I'm uh, I'm throwing, I'm heaping a lot of praise on this, but I was in love with Phantom Thread. I thought uh, it had to be 
my number one movie of the year after all the dust settled because this was just old school, beautiful filmmaking that's timeless. This is the kind of movie that is destined to be in the Criterion Collection in about 30 years from now, and it'll be one of those that some kid stumbles upon when he's going through the drama section at his library like I have over the years, like I did when I saw Shortcuts years ago. I never read anything about it. I just stumbled upon it at the drama section, and... um you know, it was Criterion Collection, and I was like, shortcuts, man. This sounds pretty cool. It had a lot of great actors in it. I picked it up, watched it. One of my favorite movies of all time. And uh, I hope somebody, like in 30 years from now, some kid finds Phantom Thread and doesn't know anything about it, puts it in, and just goes for the ride of their life and has a great time watching it. So I hope you'll have a good time watching it too, man. I hope you check out Phantom Thread because, like I said, it's my favorite movie in a year of, of world-class cinema. Phantom Thread, I thought, was the best of all of them. Would you like me to ask Alma to leave? No. Why? Well, if you're going to make her a ghost, go ahead and do it, but please don't let her sit around waiting for you. I'm very fond of her. Oh, you're very fond of her, are you? Well, in <clears throat> that case... No, don't turn it on me. I don't want your cloud on oh, my shut head. Shut up, oh, no, You can shut right up. Don't pick a fight with me. You certainly won't come out alive. I'll go right through you, and it'll be you who ends up on the floor. Understood? So there's my top five of 2017. The Shape of Water, Lady Bird, Get Out, The Florida Project, and Phantom Thread. Pretty diverse list there. I got something for everybody on that one. All right, I got to puff my stogie a little bit, man. I've been sitting here too long talking to you guys, getting too pumped up about these movies from 2017. Like I said, if you want to see my top 10 of 2017, you want to see the full top 10 list, see what missed the cut on the top five. There were some great movies. Um, go to the website, overduereview.com, and you'll see it right there, the top 10 movies of 2017. All right, I'm going to take a break, pass things over to Andy Sidley. Take it away, my friend. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Thank you, Clint. And congrats, my friend, on your uh, big announcement. Nothing quite signifies the passage of time uh, like hearing that your buddy is going to have a baby, going to have a child. Uh, it's great news, my friend. Great going. Great job. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Got it done, my friend.
<laughs> Seriously, it's it's uh, it's exciting news, man. It's uh, it's great to hear. And the passage of time, by the way, is something that uh, I'm going to talk about a little, just a little later on in the segment. But as I talk to you right now, the Grammys aired last night. Now, I'm not sure when you are listening to this, but I'm recording this on the 29th of January, so think back to what you were doing right around then. (laughs) You with me? All right, here we go. Uh, The headlines of the day are Kesha, Bruno Mars, U2 at the Statue of Liberty, Sting, and Shaggy. There's a lot of talk right now about the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement, which are very closely related. One focuses on sexual assault and abuses of power, while the latter focuses more on business practices. And, you know, look, if you got an ounce of humanity, you're going to be sympathetic toward people who were put down or abused or taken advantage of, whether financially or, or sexually. And this thing has reared its ugly head again. In the music industry. Only one woman nominated for Song of the Year and Record of the Year at this year's Grammys. A USC study looked at female representation in the most popular 600 songs from 2012 to 2017. The results were not pretty. Listen to this. Because this kind of explains a lack of female nominations at the Grammys. Over that time period, only 22% of artists were women in pop music. Only 22% of the most successful artists were women. That means over three quarters were men. Of the songwriters in popular music... 87% men. The ratio of male to female producers across 300 popular songs was 49 to 1. And when you think about it, I can name Dr. Dre. I can name Pharrell. I can name Rick Rubin. I'd have to sit and think a while before I could come up with a female producer. It's truly a male-dominated field. So there's an inclusion issue To say the least, I think we can agree on that. But aside from that, what what I really want to drive at here is that the Grammys also have a rap problem. The Grammys have a rap problem. Rap has been in existence for, what, 30, 40 years? 30 years goes, well, let's see, yeah, 30 years goes back to 87, and rap was around before that. This has been around for a while. Only one rap album has taken home album of the year. Only one rap album has ever won album of the year. That was Speaker Box, The Love Below from Outkast in 2003. According to the National Academy of Recording Arts and Science, the album of the year winner should represent a major artistic statement without regard to album sales, chart position, or critical reception. So tell me how, then, Bruno Mars beat out Jay-Z for 444 and Kendrick Lamar for Damn. 
You listen to that Kendrick Lamar album, it caught lightning in a bottle. Honestly, summarized the times better than anything else released this year. It was challenging music. It pushed you to think. It pushed you to react. It pushed you to feel. Jay's album was the deepest of his career. One of the most legendary hip-hop artists of all time let down his guard like never before and got real. And you, as the listener, felt more real as you listened to it. It was a major artistic achievement. Bruno Mars, meanwhile, gave us 24-karat magic Versace on the floor. That's what I like. He copied and pasted production techniques from the early 90s, and it was fun, non-threatening, and agreeable, but it was not artistic. Even my wife, who's a Bruno Mars fan, rolled her eyes after he won Album of the Year at the end of the broadcast. The Grammys have a rap problem. Now, let me run through a list of hip-hop albums that were up for Album of the Year that, that did not win. Go back a few years. The rap album's up for Album of the Year that did not win. Good Kid, Mad City by Kendrick Lamar. Channel Orange by Frank Ocean. The Carter Three, Lil Wayne, Graduation, Kanye West, Late Registration, Kanye West, College Dropout, Kanye West, The Eminem Show and the Marshall Mathers LP, The Score by the Fugees, none of them, none of them won Album of the Year. How many classics are on that list? Not one of them won. So what do the Grammys like when they're awarding the Album of the Year honor? Well, they like soundtracks, the Bodyguard soundtrack, Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, and Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtracks, all one album of the year. So think about that. More soundtrack albums have one album of the year than hip-hop albums. They also like cover records. Raising Sand from Robert Plant and Alison Krauss did an album of folk standards. That one album of the year. A Herbie Hancock uh, album of Joni Mitchell cover songs, one album of the year. Back-to-back years, actually. The latter beat out Kanye's graduation and Amy Winehouse's Back to Black. I know. I know. I'm wincing, too. Did you know this? Two different MTV Unplugged concert albums. One album of the year. One from Eric Clapton and one from Tony Bennett. More MTV Unplugged albums have one album of the year than rap albums. The Grammys have a rap problem, to say the least. Just worth considering. The Grammys' credibility, I don't know, not great. That's why music fans don't get into them like movie fans get into the Oscars. It's just, it's just you know, it's not at the same level of credibility. It's funny, though. The, the broadcast itself, I thought hour for hour, was the strongest in years. And then, like a bad movie, they blew it at the end. That's too bad. Now, Bruno and all of those seven guys won for writing Song of the Year, That's What I Like, which means eight people wrote That's What I Like. (laughs) Shouldn't the title of the song be That's What We, as a group, voted on (laughs) and we agreed that we like that? But look, here's, uh, here's what I want to talk about. Talking about the passage of time. That's something that's signified in a number of ways. One of the most obvious ways 
that we've talked about on this show is, is, of course, when somebody passes away. Tom Petty and Prince were productive. But now life events, I guess you could say, have, have changed that, uh, that landscape. As the Stones famously sang, time waits for no one and it won't wait for me. Well, recently, Neil Diamond, Elton John, and Paul Simon all announced that they plan to retire or, or to step away from touring. Diamond was diagnosed with an illness. Elton will spend time with his family. Paul Simon scheduled a farewell performance in July after what, what sounds like an existential crisis. He, t- he told Rolling Stone, I'm going to see what happens if I let go. Then I'm going to see who am I. Am I just this person who was defined by what I did? And if that's gone, and if you have to make it up with yourself, who are you? End quote there. Do what you got to do, Paul. But when so many prominent artists uh, make different versions of the same announcement, it does signify the passage of time. The musical landscape isn't the same as it once was it's changing little by little and again i'm still grappling with the notion that there will be no more tours from from petty or bowie or prince uh acdc may not tour again uh is this hitting you the same way or is this just kind of like a no-brainer i you know i don't know but but i for one i guess there was part of me that took quote-unquote legends for granted Guys that were lifers, they'll always be there. Not the case. Here's another one. Younger artists calling out Jay-Z is like like the OG. Jay-Z still sort of seems like the man to me in his prime. It's weird to think of of him as an elder statesman, but but he is. Elton John will go on a three-year farewell tour before calling it quits. Howard Stern joked that his kids will be in college by the time he's ready to spend time with them. He's he's 70, so he'll be 73 when this wraps up. His oldest kid right now is eight. Meanwhile, Bob Dylan is still out there. So are the Stones. Just amazing. For the record, Neil Diamond has sold over 100 million records. His biggest hit, technically, was You Don't Bring Me Flowers, a duet with Barbara Streisand. You couldn't to love me you used to hate to leave me now after loving me let it now when it's good for you babe and you're feeling all right well you just roll over and turn Elton John has sold more than 300 million records. His biggest hit is also the biggest hit in the history of the U.K. and U.S. singles charts, the Candle in the Wind tribute to Princess Diana. And it seems to me you lived your life like a candle in the wind Never fading with the sunset when the rain set in Footsteps will always fall here Along England's greenest hills 
Your candles burned out long before Your legend ever Paul Simon sold around 40 million albums with Simon and Garfunkel. Paul Simon sold, uh, let's see, I had this here. Where is it? Uh, here it is. 14, roughly 14 million solo records. His biggest hit, Bridge Over Troubled Water, with Simon and Garfunkel. So time marches on, but there, but those are huge artists that are hanging it up. Had to take note of it. Had to take note of it. All three are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, by the way, uh, which will soon welcome a, a brand new class, a class without, once again, without the Jay Giles Band. Man, I'm going to beat this drum until they get in. They deserve it. My God, they deserve it. <laughs> Uh, hey, you don't you don't know they could be listening, right? Uh, the twenty eight class, uh, twenty uh, what I say, twenty eighteen class is Tire Straits, the Cars, the Moody Blues, Nina Simone, and Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi. After thirty years of bad reviews, they are set to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. The, the uh, ceremony will be in lovely Cleveland, Ohio, in April. It'll be fun. It's always it's always a cool ceremony. Cool event. Uh, let's see, friends, you know, you know that we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. It's currently up on Spotify. All you have to do is search Stream Police and Jam Out. Every month we add five more songs, and this month they are all going to be Jay Giles Band songs. Now, Warren Zevon also deserves to be in the hall, but uh, that's a different discussion for uh, another day. Honestly, he was brilliant. Honest to God. All right, Five Guile songs. Are you ready? We're going to go deep now. The first is Sanctuary. Sanctuary! Times are tough. It's frustrating. I need relief. Some medication. I've gone too far. Intoxication. Then it's Think It Over. Third, 
This is called Piss on the Wall. Next, this is a song called Back to Get Ya. Finally, I, I love this song. It uh, concludes the Monkey Island album. It's called Wreckage. It's hard to be clearing memory without being free of the agony. Just look at me Look at me Only few return Only few will learn About the wreckage along the way Alright guys, thanks. I appreciate it. Behave Call me if you need anything. Talk to you in uh, talk to you in a few weeks. Clint, take it away. Thank you, brother, and thank you for spreading the news there. Like he said, yes, I uh, have since the last time we spoke uh, made it public that my wife Beth and I are expecting our first child. Something we never thought we were going to do in a million years. But uh, now we find ourselves pretty excited about it. And I hope this finally means I'm going to have somebody to watch movies from the 1970s with. Because for, for whatever reason, like, Beth loves watching. I mean, she'll watch movies with me. She likes watching TV shows more. But she watches movies with me. She loves watching new movies. She likes watching movies from the 90s, 2000s. But she, just for whatever reason, does not. She will not watch 70s movies with me. And, and for whatever reason, for me, the 70s is like the decade of with all the movies that I want to watch all the time. So... Hopefully, like, in, you know, 12 years or something. I'm going to have to wait a while, but hopefully this kid will be into watching 1970s movies with me. He'll sit down and watch, like, all the old Sidney Lumet movies that my wife will not watch with me. So I finally got a pal to watch the Sidney Lumet movies with me. Uh, with I know Andy would if he was close to me. He'd, he'd watch those Lumet films, but, you know, I just he's, he's too far away right now. So thanks again, Andy. I appreciate it very much. And uh, like I said, man, hot takes on the Grammys. He's always got them. That uh, that show always pisses him off. <laughs> and as he mentioned, the playlist, I did a little bit of research on the playlist real quick um, th- that's going on Spotify right now. And if you want to find it, you can search for Stream Police Podcast Five Songs Collection. That's the full name. If you search Stream Police Podcast, you should find it. But again, Stream Police Podcast Five Songs Collection 
is what it's called. There are 179 songs now on that playlist. That makes up 11 hours and 58 minutes worth of music, and he keeps adding more songs over time. Obviously, since the number is 179, you can tell there have been some that have not actually been on Spotify, so we couldn't add them uh, to the playlist. But uh, that that playlist just keeps going and going and going, man. I like it. I, I, I look forward every time to see the new additions. And he added five Jay Giles songs. And I got to tell you now, there are seven Jay Giles Band songs in the playlist. That is more than any other single artist. So if you think he's kidding about being obsessed with them uh, getting into the Hall of Fame, he's not kidding, man. Seven songs by Jay Giles Band. That's more than any other artist on the playlist. By the way, Andy, Bruce only has one fucking song on the playlist. I don't know how you excuse that. Bob has two songs on the playlist. All right. And... I was doing a little more research, and Bone Thugs and Harmony have zero songs on the playlist, so I don't know how you explain that. You couldn't put Crossroads or the Thuggish Ruggish Bone or the First of the Month. Just something. Couldn't throw them a bone, man. That pun wasn't even intended, but that was pretty good. So that's it. The Stream Police Podcast 5 Songs Collection now streaming on Spotify. All right, I'm not uh, going to do too much uh, else here. I'm going to just basically recommend some movies for you that are right now on Netflix and Amazon uh, and get you out the door. Since it is Valentine's Day coming up here in a few uh, days from when I'm recording this, I wanted to tell you about three great on-screen romances that are on Netflix right now if you want to check them out. First off, The African Queen, all right? It's Bogey and Catherine Hepburn on a boat for two hours going, you know, down the river in Africa during World War One, and that's the whole movie pretty much, and it is awesome. I reviewed the entire thing up at Overdue Review if you want to read my full thoughts on it. But this is just, I mean, John Huston directed it, and like I said, I mean, it's Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn, the only time they were ever co-leads in a movie together. Um, in the African Queen. This is just cinema history and magic, and watching their little romance is so fun to watch it play out. It's such a sweet little movie uh, without being saccharine, but it's definitely a sweet little movie. So if you want a little adventure with your romance, check out The African Queen on Netflix. How'd you like it? Like it? White water, rapid. I never dreamed. I don't blame you for being scared, miss, not one little bit. Ain't no person in their right mind ain't scared of white water. I never dreamed that any mere physical experience could be so stimulating. How's that, miss? I've only known such excitement a few times before. A few times in my dear brother's sermons when the spirit was really upon him. You mean you want to go on? Naturally. Miss, you're crazy. I beg your pardon? All right, this Valentine's Day, if you're looking for an aged romance, that's like a fine wine, right? It only gets better as it gets older. Check out 45 Years, starring the incomparable Charlotte Rampling, who was nominated for an Oscar a couple years ago when this movie came out. And this film, I raved about it. I talked about it on the show when we uh, Beth and I had seen it in theaters, and I loved this movie. I, I'm looking forward to watching this one again. So 45 years, if you want to watch a little romance, just like the title sounds like, it's a couple that's been married for 45 years. I'm not going to tell you that it's the sweetest romance. I'm not going to tell you that it paints their marriage out to be this perfect, you know, sweet little union, but it is a good movie. It's got some profound things to say about couplehood and, um, you know, about marriage, about people that have been together for that long. So definitely check out 45 Years on Netflix. Um, I, I was her next of kin. What do you mean? Uh, officially, 
I, I was her next of kin. I'm sure I told you this before. But I think Kate. I remember her husband being another woman's next of kin. Why? Why what? Well, why were you her next of kin? Because they thought we were married. Who did? The authorities, people. What made them think that? We, we told them we were. You weren't, though? Oh, no, 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 hell no. We, we just had to pretend so that people would let us stay in their houses. Different in those days, Kate. And then, after the accident, well... Yeah. You're not lying to me. No, Kate, she wore a ring on her finger. It was a small wooden ring, like a curtain ring, made of oak. I need to remember that. It wasn't real. And finally... If you want to cry together this Valentine's Day, there's only one movie that's going to get that done, and that is Atonement, which right now is on Netflix as well. Beth and I just watched Atonement not very long ago, and I got to tell you, she's like a stone usually. Like, no, movies do not make her cry ever. I mean, I, can, I cannot really think of any movies that have made her cry over the years. I don't even think she cried at the end of Brokeback Mountain, but she cried at the end of Atonement, and she keeps talking about it like weeks after we watched it about how this movie has stuck with her and shaken her up. And it is it is a stunning ending, and it's a stunning story, and it's a it's it's a sad as hell movie, but it is romantic, and it's got one of the best sex scenes I have ever watched in a movie. So if you want to turn the heat up a little bit, check out Atonement and bonus points because it's got the great little Saoirse Ronan, uh, who got nominated for an Oscar when she was just a little kid in this movie. Uh, as well. So Atonement right now is on Netflix also. And that's one of those movies that was way better than I thought it was going to be going into it. So The African Queen, 45 Years, and Atonement right now on Netflix for you. Um, and if you want one more bonus romance, if you go out to theaters and see Call Me By Your Name because that was one of the best romances that was on screen all year this year. And unlike really any other romance that I have seen, by the way, that was number six on my top 10 movies. So that one just missed the top five. Call me by your name did movies now streaming on Netflix and Amazon. I already told you three on Netflix, but I'm going to give you one more because it's just that good. 1972's the Godfather. It's on Netflix right now. In fact, Godfather one and two are both on Netflix right now. I don't know if three is, I didn't search, but you can't go wrong with Godfather one or two. If you, if you've been waiting like to watch these, if you never watched the Godfather, this is your best chance ever to watch it. It's uncut. It's on Netflix. So you don't have to sit through commercials. It's the full, you know, R rated version of the film. And you're watching once again, cinema history. There's a reason why people call this the greatest movie ever made. I don't think it, I, I don't go that far. I don't think it's the greatest movie ever made, but man, it is fantastic. It never gets old. I, I like part two actually a little bit better, but check the Godfather out. If you've been putting it off, I mean, it's one of those movies you have to be able to say that you have seen at some point and pay attention because it's a powerhouse. Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes, man. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. There's a, a million quotes in this movie and a million great performances as well. Al Pacino, legendary, and James Caan. Just uh, doesn't get any better. Marlon Brando, of course. All right, Mike, you go to a restaurant, you eat, you talk for a while, you relax. You make them relax. Then you get up and you go take a leak. Or better still, you ask for permission to go. And when you come back, you come out blasting. And don't take any chances. Two shots in the head apiece. Listen, I want somebody good, and I mean very good, to plant that gun. I don't want my brother coming out of that toilet with just his dick in his hands, all right? And finally, on Amazon right now, back to 1968, 
It's the Thomas Crown Affair starring Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway. I actually prefer the 1999 remake of this one, believe it or not. I like the remake of the Thomas Crown Affair better than the old one. I just think John McTiernan did a better job with it, made the movie you know more serious and uh, more intense and even you know maybe a little sexier. But this 1968 Thomas Crown Affair, one of the sexiest films I have ever seen. Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway together. They don't even, there's no sex scene uh, in the movie, but there's this scene where they play chess together. And oh my God, it's like, it's like watching porn, man. I mean, you might have to excuse yourself from the room while you're watching this thing. So check it out. The Thomas Crown Affair on Amazon. If you like those old swing in sixties movies. And if you're into, uh, you know, Steve McQueen, Faye Dunaway and everybody else, all those cool cats back then. Check that movie out because you're going to love it. It's worth it to watch just so you get to hear Windmills of Your Mind. What a cool song. Won the uh, won the Oscar back in its day. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Thank you very much, my friend, for sticking around with us. Go on to iTunes and please be sure to give us a nice five-star review. Only if you mean it, though. I don't want any fake-ass reviews that you just give them because I'm telling you to. Go on there and give us a real one uh, because it's from the heart and because you mean it. Uh, and thank you very much for subscribing and for listening to the show and checking out the website as well, OverdueReview.com. I'm Clint Davis, movies and TV editor over there at the website. Reach me at theclintdavis at gmail.com. And my good friend Andy Sedlak, our music editor, you can reach him at sedlakjournal at gmail.com, S-E-D-L-A-K, journal at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much. We'll talk to you next time. Until then, stream on, my friend. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.